It's Baseball HQ Radio, the Tuesday edition. We'll talk with fantasy baseball researcher and writer Jason Collette next on Baseball HQ Radio. Bonds one home run away from history. And he swings, and there's a long one deep in the right center field. Way back there, it's gone! A home run! Into the center field bleachers to the left of the 421-foot marker. An extraordinary shot to the deepest part of the yard. And Barry Bonds, with 756 home runs, he has hit more home runs than anyone who has ever played the game. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, August the 13th. It's show number 35 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to fantasy baseball researcher and writer Jason Collette talking about changing pitcher baselines, the effects of defensive shifts, closers in non-save situations, buy low, sell highs, and more, we'll have commentaries from the experts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our regular Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon looks at shortstop J.P. Crawford, the Phillies' 2013 first-round pick. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler talks about whether one month is long enough for a league. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us on the Tuesday edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Mariano Rivera blows three saves in a row? We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, on Sunday, Mariano Rivera came in to pitch the top of the ninth and protect a 4-2 Yankees lead over the Tigers. Bam! A solo home run by Miguel Cabrera made it 4-3. Pow! Another solo home run by Victor Martinez makes it 4-all, and it's a blown save for Mighty Mo. And what's even more unusual, it's the third straight save opportunity Rivera has let slip through his fingers in the last week. Four days earlier, he gave up a run to lose a lead to the lowly White Sox in a game the Yankees ultimately lost. And then two days after that, he gave up a two-run homer in the ninth to Cabrera to give up a 3-1 lead over the Tigers. Rivera ended up getting the win in the Sunday game on a Brett Gardner walk-off home run, in case you needed any reminder how stupid the win stat is. But this was the first time in Rivera's career that he's blown three save opportunities in a row, and all eyes will be on the Yankees the next time they take a narrow lead into the ninth inning. And when's the last time you could say that? No need for us to wonder about our closer today. Ron Chandler will be on the hill at the end of the show, set up by our minor league analyst Rob Gordon and the Minor League Minute. And our starter today, a researcher and writer for rotowire.com, baseball prospectus and other sites, it's Jason Collette. Jason, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Good day, Patrick. How are you? I'm doing really well, Jason. Thanks very much. Besides Baseball Prospectus, probably one of your best-known writing assignments, where else do you uh, write or report? Uh, Rotowire.com uh, is where I'm, I also have a, a weekly column. On the Baseball Prospectus side, I'm all audio these days. I do the radio sphere appearances and the podcast over there, but my writing is focused at Rotowire. And then uh, if you would like some uh, analytical work on the Tampa Bay Rays, you can find uh, my work at theprocessreport.net. 
How are you doing in your experts leagues this year overall? See, the AL Capitals, I drafted Albert Pujols and Josh Hamilton, so that should explain how I'm doing there. Um, and, but I am uh, Paul Spore, and I teamed up in the mixed labor uh, draft, and we are one point out of first place, uh, trailing Fred Zinke, who I know you've had on the show. Uh, so we, we're one point out of there. We were in first place a couple of days ago, so we're jostling back and forth. There's four teams within six points of first place in that mixed labor league, which has made it a lot of fun. Uh, so and that's we're having this nice surge of late, even with Evan Longoria not doing much. So if we can get him back on track, maybe we can win that league in our first year in it. That'd be exciting. It's always good to be right around the top of the table uh, in, in any league, but especially in a league full of guys uh, of that caliber. In 2008, I was second place in NL Tout Wars, and that's the last time I finished that high in any of the expert leagues I've played in. Uh, the national one, so I, I would like to get into there. I wasn't able to make that. That draft uh, we had online, so I kind of uh, mix, missed hanging out with all the people. That's the best part about having these drafts is, you know, get to see you guys uh, in New York and Arizona uh, when we do those. But it's been a fun season. We started off, and part of our thing is when we did our, when Paul and I did our podcast, we said, look, if we're in that league, we're going to get you Darvish and we're going to get Matt Moore. That's exactly what we went out and did. Uh, so if we can get Matt Moore back off the DL, that'll help too. But Darvish, that duo has been huge for us on the pitching side. You, you mentioned that you're writing at rotowire.com. You had a really interesting piece the other day about how the more aggressive use of defensive shifts, of course, Tampa Bay being a pioneer in that regard, is affecting how we need to think about all of our pitching baselines. What did you think about that, and what did you find out? Yeah, you know, the shifts are way up. The folks at Baseball Info Solutions have been calculating them for the past couple of years, and this year it's on pace to double what it was two years ago. And it's because more and more teams are looking at it and saying, you know what, this isn't so bad. And the team that's leading all of baseball and shifts this year, Pittsburgh Pirates. Oh. Uh, and, and that's part of the reason they're being successful. You see guys like Francisco Liriano, who compounded on both sides of the plate. Mark Melanson with that awesome cutter of his could just really get it inside and force the defense, to, you know, force the hitters to put the ball into play and let the defense do the work. And I think it's causing a few things. One of the other things that really stands out is, you know, typically for batting average on balls in play and hit rate on, on batted ball types, we're pretty accustomed to a 230-ish on ground balls, uh, you know, right around that for fly balls and about a 720 on line drives. This year, line drives are down 40 points, and fly balls are down another 30 points because I think defenses are better positioned these days. When we think of shifts, we think about stuff on the infield, but shifts happen everywhere. They happen in the outfield, and sometimes the shifts are just well – you know, a lot of line drives, a lot of added balls this year, and I think the excessive use of the shift is playing into that overall. You know, I talked with Steve Gardner of usatoday.com a couple of weeks ago, and he had a story in the paper and online, I think, uh, about he interviewed guys at the All-Star game and asked them you know, what they thought about advanced statistics and how did they apply them in their regular uh, playing career, and, and Jeff Locke was one of the guys he talked to, and they kind of got into it a little bit about Jeff Locke's relatively low strikeout rate, and Jeff Locke said, you know, basically, you call it a low strikeout rate, I call it efficiency, because he, they were turning a lot of ground balls into outs behind him, and yeah, he's only striking out 4.9 per nine, and we think that's unsustainable, but gosh, if he's getting them to beat the ball into the ground and hit it right, right where they are, why not? And with the defense he has behind him, especially Clint Barmas' shortstop, I know we all like to make a lot of fun of his inability to hit, but my goodness, he, he's, a, he's a vacuum over there at shortstop. So it works out rather well, and in Locke's case, 
he's been flirting with disaster for weeks now with the with the low strike strikeout rate, uh, the walks match out, nearly matching the strikeout. A lot of people have been saying sell high for weeks, uh, and it, it's starting to show a little bit now. But that that one of quote unquote luck lasted a lot longer because of what he has behind him. And certainly it, uh, it makes us think, gosh, maybe we need to rethink what constitutes a really good pitcher. For instance, you've made the argument, I believe, that uh, we need to rethink how we look at flyball pitchers because the, the prevailing knowledge is, well, it's too many extra base hits. But if, more, more, if way more of those fly balls are landing in guys' gloves, all of a sudden that's not such a big issue, and that starts pushing their ERAs and whips closer together. Yeah, I mean, over the course of the season, if the batting average of Molden play on ground balls is 238 and fly balls is 195, over the course of the season, that's going to play out. You look at, you compare the, the ratios of fly ball pitchers to ground ball pitchers, and right now, fly ball pitchers are winning that battle. Sure, they're going to be at the mercy of the home run to fly ball ratio. They always are. Uh, but you look at a guy like Bruce Chen, since he's been a starter over the last five weeks, if you watch the game he pitched um, last night uh, against Boston, 15 fly ball outs, and none of them were even close to going out of the park. I mean, this is a guy whose fastball would probably bounce off a pane of glass, but he's shut down one of the most dominating hitting lineups in baseball right now just by keeping them off, uh, off the pace. And you know, they kept popping up, getting under the baseball, thinking, okay, here comes 84, middle in, I'm going to crush this, and ended up as a lazy fly ball to Alex Gordon or Lorenzo Cain or Justin Maxwell. So how are we going to play this in the future, do you think, Jason? I mean, we, we know that these shifts are happening. Eventually, every team in the in the all of baseball is going to realize they have to adopt these kind of strategies. Are lower line drive, fly ball, and ground ball hit rates going to be the fact in the future? Uh, it, it could be. It has been over the last couple of seasons in terms of line drive. I mean, for, from 2003 to 2011, it's pretty much a 720 rate right across. In the last couple of seasons, it's starting to trend down. So is fly balls. Ground balls have remained constant. It's been two, within six points between 232 and 238 since they started tracking this with ground balls. So that's staying constant. So it just it's worth watching, especially on fly balls. We know line drive. Pitchers can't control that. It, it's going to happen some years. You got it. Some years you don't, so it's, it's kind of fool's play to follow that kind of piece. But we'll look at you know looking at ground balls and fly ball pitchers. I think people should not you know shy away from the fly ball pitchers. It's always been a good mantra: look for the guys with the high dom rate, the high ground ball rate, and whatnot. But I think fly ball rates are becoming a bit of a value until this becomes more of a uh, a mainstream thing. And perhaps even after, you mentioned that the Pirates are leading the way in this aggressive shifting. We know that Tampa with Joe Madden have been pioneers in the area, as I said. But what other teams right now are doing a more aggressive job of shifting? Uh, Milwaukee is one of those teams. Baltimore is one of those teams. Milwaukee, they really got on the bandwagon a couple of years ago when they had that horrendous middle infield defense. They had Weeks and, and Judy Betancourt. Guys, you know, his range is, is like you and I out there in the field, and they got on it just to help things out. Uh, but Baltimore's done a lot more of it now with, with Showalter at the helm. But there's some teams, I believe that the Giants and Dodgers are still one of the, the are running a handful of them. I want to say on the season, they're not, their total is like 25. It's really low. So there's still a few teams out there that just aren't doing much of it, uh, but some teams are, and it's making a difference. So you don't want a fly ball pitcher on a team that's refusing to, to add the shift. I, I know that I see that there are certain teams they'll pull a shift on the real pronounced pull hitters, Adam Dunn, Ortiz, guys like that. 
But for the rest of the time, they tend to play it, you know, the center fielders one step or two steps to right or to left, but they don't really get as aggressive as some of the uh, Tampa Bay, Pittsburgh type teams. You know the shift I'm looking for? I want to see a team get out there against Jacoby Ellsbury and put all three outfielders in left field. Because if you look at his spring chart this year, that guy is wearing out the left field. But most teams tend to play him straight up. And so he just keeps flipping, flipping the ball over the third base of his head. Anytime somebody throws him on the outside, he's no longer trying to pull the ball. If for power, people are concerned, like, where's his power? He'll still jerk one. If you miss middle end, he's going to jerk it out of the park, as he did in Houston earlier this week, twice. But if you pitch him on the outer half, he's just taking that ball out there to left field. So teams pitching him out there and running with straight outfield alignment, it's kind of confusing. I don't get it. I want to see a team do something drastic and bring that into like the rover position like they do in softball and say, okay, now let's see what you can do. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, You know, I used to live in England and I followed cricket a little bit and they have a more or less standard defensive alignment, but it's not at all unusual for them to all just abandon those positions and go and stand where they know that the ball is likely to be hit, which which to a baseball uh, observer would be like putting two guys in left field, for instance, one short, one deep, or one you know short on the line and one deep in the gap, something like that. But really, if you think about it, why wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. If, if Jacoby Ellsbury hits a ground ball to shortstop, he's most likely going to beat it out, unless it's a line drive to shortstop. And he's not hitting that many, so why not take the shortstop and move him deeper? you got to play, if you play the third baseman deep, he's just going to drop a bunt down, so you can't do that. So play the third baseman up on the dirt, take the shortstop and play him deeper, and then if he, get, if he gets a weak contact there in that spot, fine. Uh, but I just think it's worth trying out because the guy has been doing it all season, and once he's on first base, then he's taking second base. And it's been a nice, you know, a couple of years ago, had all the power, and that was a nice thing. But the way he's changed himself into becoming a different weapon this year has been uh, fun to watch from a baseball fan perspective. Not much from a Rays fan perspective, but as a baseball player, like, yeah, that's pretty cool. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Jason Collette from rotowire.com and other outlets. Uh, Jason, you've been arguing for a while, as has Ray Murphy here at baseballhq.com, that we might need to reassess, really rethink all the standard baselines we use in evaluating players for fantasy purposes, especially pitchers. Now, you've mentioned this issue with defensive positioning, but what else is going on here? For me, when we see the league, the strikeout rate in the league continues to rise year after year after year, and I think... It's more from a change of approach in hitting. It's also more from specialized pitching in the back end. Teams realizing you know, the, the complete game, unless the guy's really dominating, there's no sense in throwing that guy out there. Bring your relievers in who are throwing gaps. We've seen it in Pittsburgh all year. Uh, you know, do those kind of things. So the strikeout rate's going up and the walk rate's going down because as, as players are getting, as you know, PDs and whatnot have been cleansed out of the game, as, as, as that we think, um, you know, then again, none of the biogenesis guys actually failed the test. Uh, but it seems like pitchers have more, they're more confident throwing the ball within the strike zone and aren't nibbling as much anymore. So we see the walk rate going down, the strikeout rates going up. So it, back in the day, you know, we used to think a 2.0 command ratio was cool. Nowadays, I don't think it's that impressive because it shouldn't be that hard to have a 2 to 1 strike the walk rate. Uh, so I just think we need to look at more guys. We look at the league average uh, for starting pitchers, they're around 19 to 20%. For relievers, it's just a tad higher. I think if you're looking at a guy with a low dom ratio, you need you may need to revisit that because you're hurting yourself. So, what do you think the command ratio, strikeouts to walks, should be uh, to, for be uh, considered a, for a fantasy roster? 
You know, I would set my, my benchmark at 2-4 and go above that. Typically, when I'm doing my own cheat sheet to draft, I've always set mine around 2-4, 2-5. I want to get rid of that, you know, eliminate that gray area, and a lot of people look at 2. But for me, if I'm sitting there doing my, my cheat sheet, you know, guys, who I want to target in the draft, I'm going to set my strikeout rate at 20%. I want to, you know, one of every five guys, Kang, I like that picture. I want a guy you know, with a 2-4 or above strikeout to walk ratio. I, I mentioned earlier, I don't care about ground balls and fly balls as much anymore unless it's perk specific. You know, if, if I've got a guy, if I'm going after a Red Sox pitcher, I'm looking at two different guys, I'm going to lean towards the ground ball pitcher just because of the ballpark. If I'm in Colorado, I'm going to lean towards the ground ball pitcher. But overall, I don't care about the batted ball type. I care about the skills. And if you're in Oakland, I'm guessing flyball pitchers are all right. Uh, what, yeah, who cares there? Parker, Cologne, all of them. I, I, lo- I love those pitchers. And what about the strikeout rate? It used to be that the benchmark was 6.0 strikeouts per nine as a kind of a threshold for consideration. Has that gone up in your view as well? Uh, yeah, for me, I'm looking at least seven. I, I don't like touching the guys below that. I, in fact, I really prefer to stay at 7.5 and higher. I like setting that because... Strikeouts are a counting category, and I want to pile up as many of those as possible. So if you're if you're a guy that goes with the, with the six starting pitcher and the, and the three relief pitcher format, and you know if you get a guy with a low K nine rate as one of your starters, then you've got to find a reliever that can offset that. You know if you have a, a Steve Delabar, for instance, that you know you could have him, and that helps offset a guy like Jeff Lockett if you had him on there. But it, it, I just I really like counting categories. I want to max out my potential. So if I can get a lot of those strikeouts, uh, the more bats that are missed, the fewer home runs that are hit, the fewer balls that are put in the play. Sure, strand rates go up. There. Every, everything uh, is an advantage for a strikeout pitcher. And as you said, it's a counting category in and of itself. Uh, Jason, you recently tweeted that Jeremy Hellickson of the Rays is uh, has a 6-2 and two record, uh, 329 ERA, 123 whip over his last nine starts. Uh, bullpen guy at Tampa, Willie Peralta, 266 ERA, 222 batting average against after 616-309 earlier in the season. We advise fantasy players to be very careful about looking at short-run changes in performance. So how can they know when to pay attention to stats like these, whether they're good or bad, and when they should ignore them? That's the thing. As fantasy baseball players, we have 26 weeks to evaluate players. So you try, especially at this part of the season, you're trying to be ahead of your competition. So the, the numbers of both those guys, we're still in small sample sizes if you're looking for everything to even legitimize what they've done. Uh, we, we need, you know, 150 innings to try to look back and say, okay, yes, this was a good season, this was a poor season. But in small runs like this, you're just looking for guys to target and the change in skills. And with Peralta is a great example of this. First two months of the season, this guy was putrid. Uh, and he was getting hit hard. And then he started finding some success. And you go look at where he was pitching. He, and what really stepped up for him was facing lefties. Early in the season, he couldn't get lefties out on a consistent basis because all he was doing is throwing his pitches on the outer half of the plate, not changing many eye levels. So people were just looking at their fastball, breaking ball, okay, the occasional show-me change, no problem, I'm going to hit this. Then he finally got the confidence to start throwing the ball inside. So if people were looking out, 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 he was surprising on the inner half with fastballs and breaking balls. And if you compare his numbers from April and May and then since, on how he's facing lefties, it's a dramatic change. And this has been a guy that's been able to keep the ball on the ground a lot. mentioned earlier that Milwaukee doesn't play a lot of shifts. So when you look at his success, the team's doing horrible. His overall numbers still don't look that pretty. But you look at his success over the last couple of uh, months, and it's been good. He's a guy I'm in the NL Keeper League. I traded for him six weeks ago, and I've enjoyed a lot of success. 
and the guy I got them from is a little upset at me for getting them. You also had a story at Rotowire addressing a commonly held belief that closers tend to do much more poorly when they're brought into games outside of save situations. When you looked into it, what did you find about this bit of conventional wisdom? Yeah, the Jonathan Papelbon theory. Uh, <laughs> every time a closer gets brought into a non-save situation, they blow up. And he and Valverde have made that infamous, but for the most part, it's terribly overblown. And the thing is, I know from a fantasy perspective, it stinks when your closer comes in in a non-save situation because the only thing you can get out of it are a couple of strikeouts maybe, uh, but if they have one of these lazy outings, it can hurt your ratios a little bit. But the good news is uh, you, know, you want those kind of closers that work in not just closing situations, bring them in in tight games. A guy like Glenn Perkins in Minnesota, Fernando Rodney here in Tampa Bay, those kind of guys, because they can also pick up some vulture wins. But so if your guy is being saved for just closing situations, he blows a save and they get him a win, that's how they get two or three wins a season. But if they're also pitching in tie ball games and not being held for saves, and that helps out too. That's all a closer can get, five, six wins. And this, those extra wins count. I know any of us listening here had won or lost the win category in our league by a single win. I think also uh, a lot of people believe in the uh, traditional thinking that closers do poorly when they get into these blowout situations just getting in work because they remember when it didn't work and it stands out more in their mind and they don't go back and look at, oh, this guy had 12 such outings and he, he did fine except in one of them. All that, that one bad outing really sticks in, in your mind, especially when it's your closer. But, uh, Jason, I was reading on ESPN the other day about how teams are getting smarter about not overpaying for closers because they realize it's, it's not really a thing. Like we, we, we all know that already. But do you see big changes coming in how bullpens are managed and that having an impact on fantasy baseball and how we evaluate bullpen pitching? No, because it's pretty much been the same. There's a handful of guys that don't do it that way, but for the most part, you don't bring your closer in at a tie game on the road. And we, How many times have we seen the Reds lose this year because Dusty Baker saves a role as Chapman for save situations? I know Jeff Erickson is constantly whining about it on Twitter, and deservedly so because they've saved him for too many games. I was, uh, watched the game the other night where the Rays and Giants were in extra innings, and the heart of the Rays lineup was coming up in the bottom of the 10th inning, and Bochy used Macri, one of their low-leverage relievers, and he had Sergio Romo warming in the bullpen uh, in case the save came up. And to me, I would have done that in reverse order. I would have thrown Romo at the heart of the Rays lineup, and then if they got through that, they didn't bring in Macri for the save. So I really don't think it's going to change because I've only seen four or five managers that are willing to go against the grind like that. Uh, but that, that it's going to take a, a shift for that to happen because uh, it's you just look around the league, you're seeing too many guys. This is my eighth inning guy. This is my ninth inning guy, uh, and very uh, very rigid process. And there's been an argument that it makes sense for that because players do like to know what their role is. Uh, it allows them to get mentally ready and so forth. And you'd have to probably do some training or psychological development to help guys get out of that mindset. But when you say that managers are stuck in their ways, for want of a better term, Ron Washington also comes to mind in Texas. I know lots of Rangers fans are constantly griping about Ron Washington's bullpen management on exactly the same grounds as uh, you just mentioned about Dusty Baker in Cincinnati. But two years ago, you could have said that Madden in Tampa Bay is an absolute outlier with these crazy shifts. And guess what? 
it's starting to happen. And I wonder if the Cincinnati Reds are going to look at Dusty Baker's bullpen management, especially if they missed the playoffs by two games, and say, you know what? Your bullpen management cost us a playoff run, cost us $10 million in gate, cost us our playoff share from the from the TV money. you got to fix this or we got to find somebody else. Yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me. And even with Madden, you know, Madden, when I go over there to cover games, you know, Madden said repeatedly, you know, while he's willing to use anybody in any place, he does plan ahead in the bullpen. He likes knowing at the end of the game, I can bring Peralta in here. I can bring Rodney in here. Now, sometimes he's brought Peralta in in the seventh inning. Sometimes he's brought Rodney in in the eighth inning. But it allows him, knowing who he has back there, how to set up his bullpen in his head. So if he if he's used Peralta for four straight nights, he will tell Peralta to go sit in the stands. I am not going to let you pitch tonight. And then he'll mix the matches bullpen depending on the matchups. When he's got both of those guys, he does tend to use them in that order. Um, but if the case, if it gets to extra innings, he's brought in Rodney in the tenth inning before in a tie game. He doesn't care. You don't see a lot of managers do that. But uh, yeah, I still think it's going to start happening because a lot of teams, general managers and owners, are going to look at Tampa and go, "Geez, they seem to win a lot of close games." With that uh, attitude that they have about there's no such thing as a closer, or at least we're willing to use them in non-standard situations. I just think it's a, it's going to come. I'm just curious about when. Uh, you wrote recently in Baseball Prospectus about John Danks of the White Sox, and specifically about his solid recovery from shoulder surgery, and you even made a deal to acquire him in a keeper league. What did you see in Danks' 2013 post-surgery performance that encouraged you so much to get after him? The skills held on. I mean, the shoulder surgery, we're spoiled as fans because Tommy John surgery seems so routine these days. And don't tell that to Brian Manson. But it seems so routine these days because these guys have it, they come back, and they pick up where they left off within within 18 months of it. But shoulders are not the case. I mean, the, the, the fail rate on shoulder surgery uh, returns is pretty strong, and the one that Danks had was a pretty severe shoulder surgery. But you look at his skills, compare his, his pitching skills in 2013 to pre-injury, and there's barely a difference. And that, and I like John Danks before he got hurt. So when you watch him pitch, you see a lot of movement on his pitches still. He's still throwing uh, with a good velocity, still working both sides of the plate, adding and subtracting with his pitches. He is what he is. He's a, he's a three or a four, and maybe some people might think he should be more, but I don't. You just watch him pitch. They're like, okay, that could be effective. If he were on a better team right now, I think you people would be all over him. But the fact he's pitching on the lowly White Sox and, and they're not doing much um, really hurts his overall value. But you look at the skills. If you remove the name and look at the skills, that's an attractive pitcher. Well, speaking of the lowly White Sox, you had a baseball prospectus article in the fantasy section about the White Sox efforts to make Adam Dunn more effective as a hitter. How do you think fantasy owners should view Dunn at this point in his career? Here's the thing. It made absolutely no sense for the White Sox. So coming into the season, the White Sox went to Adam Dunn, a guy that you know is trying to keep the earth cool one swing at a time, and said, you know what, we want you to be even more. We want you to be aggressive. Stop being so passive at the plate. And be aggressive. Get out there and swing. If you see a pitch, go for it. Don't wait for your pitch. If it's over the strike zone, just swing. Stop taking walks. So he gets to the first two months of the season, he's hitting a buck fifty-six and slugging below four hundred, striking out as much as ever. Uh, and then he finally said, "You know what? No, I'm going back to my way." And then since June first, Adam Dunn's hitting two eighty-nine on base at a four hundred one clip, slugging five thirty-two. It's cut his strikeouts rate down to twenty-three percent. That's huge for him because he's always you know, been over 30%. Uh, so with him choosing more parts of the field now, and 
it's been a nice. I know he's he's killing me in one of my own leagues. I was in first place. The guy behind me at Adam Dunn and Adam Dunn and Rajai Davis that combo have pushed that team ahead of me just from their performance here over the last two months uh, with everything. So with Dunn, he is what he is. He could get back to forty home runs this year again, but he's hit you know at least thirty eight in what seven of the past eight seasons, and he's got his batting average up to two twenty five right now. Uh, which for him, again, is huge, uh, considering he's been down 205 or lower over the last three seasons. So he is what he is. You draft him for the home runs, you draft him for the RBIs, everything else is gravy. You weren't a big believer, Jason, that Bud Norris was going to be a good get for fantasy owners once he got traded to Baltimore. It's a better team, obviously. They score way more runs than the Astros, a much better bullpen. It's a winning situation, so you get the competitive juices flowing. Honest to gosh, what's, what's not to like with Bud Norris in Baltimore? Uh, the fact that his, his career numbers are just terrible on the road, that, that's what really scares me with him. Uh, you know, I've always thought the guy was a relief pitcher, to be honest with you. I always looked at him and say he's going to be a reliever. The problem is he doesn't get lefties out uh, that well, and there's a lot of good lefties in the American League East, but you look at his overall numbers between home and away, and it's just it's a different pitcher. We're talking about a guy with a, a two thirty eight batting average against at home, two eighty two on the road. And this is in uh, almost 1,500 plate appearances, so we've got a large enough sample size to look at this and say, okay, why is there a 103-point difference in your OPS between home and road starts and the fact that you can't get lefties out? That's what makes me – I didn't even throw a bit on him. And there's a league I need pitching in uh, in an AL league, and I didn't even throw a bit on Norris when he crossed over because this scares me. It kind of reminds me of when Ryan Dempster went from Chicago to Texas and got cuffed around. That's what I'm worried about. And finally, Jason, you had a piece in Baseball Prospectus uh, talking about the importance of a batter drawing his first walk. First of all, it's an interesting idea. What made you think of it? And then second, what did you find? Uh, two, two guys let me think about it. Uh, this year, Jeff Keppinger, and last year, Josh Donaldson. Uh, this year, Jeff Keppinger, you know, after having the great year in Tampa Bay, uh, went to Chicago on a three-year deal and has you know, pretty much been a disappointment, but was off to a horrendous start, hitting about a buck forty-nine. Uh, heading deep into May, and then he finally took a walk. And since doing that, he's back to being Jeff Keppinger, hitting you know 270-ish uh, since that uh, point to taking that walk. And then with Josh Donaldson last year, as a rookie, call up, goes 100 plate appearances without taking a walk, uh, gets sent down to the minors, comes back up, and then since then Josh Donaldson's been awesome. Obviously, maybe the All Star team has been a, has been big for me in AL Tout Wars. Uh, probably my best pick in that draft. The rest of them were not so well, but you know he was my best pick there, and he's been a good player. So I just think, you know, Joe Madden often says uh, to the media poll when uh, we're out there, you know, if you're walking, you're hitting. So if you're not walking, you're not hitting. And I know that the walk rate's gone down in the league, but that doesn't mean you can go from like a six percent walk rate to a two percent walk rate and not be prone to these kind of slumps. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Jason Collette from rotowire.com and Baseball Prospectus and elsewhere. And Jason, we've been asking all our expert guests to give us some buy low and sell high players for the balance of the season, a hitter and pitcher in each league. Let's start with buy lows. How about an American League hitter you'd like to buy low? Uh, Alex Gordon. Uh, yeah, I look at him lately since, I'm looking at him since July 1st. He's got about a 19% hit rate. Uh, when you look at what his career rate is, and even in this season, it's about uh, 31%. That's a rather large gap between the established norms and what he's doing of late. Uh, we saw what he, he did it previously where he's had these nice hot runs. That's the guy that I'd be trying to get right now. 
And he's one of those guys that a lot of people were on coming into the year, probably a little disappointed in his season to date, maybe an, an easier target than some others. How about in the National League, a hitter you could buy low? Uh, National League, buy low hitter. Um, I had Pedro Alvarez is the guy I was thinking of because he's a streaky guy. We saw what he did with Kerry the Pirates in May and early June. But since June, his OPS is 730. That's not what you want out of your corner guy. Uh, and he just hasn't hit that many home runs, and he's back to a little bit of a strikeout issue. I'd be willing to take my chance on him getting streaky again. So if you can find somebody who is a bit frustrated uh, with his lack of production lately, that's a guy I'd be going after. How about a pitcher in the American League you could buy low? You'll probably laugh at this one. Josh Johnson. <laughs> with Josh Johnson, the numbers, he's another one of my AL Tout Wars guys. Uh, you know, the numbers have been absolutely putrid because he's been getting pounded with runners on base for whatever reason. It's something they probably need to revisit in the offseason because uh, we've seen pitchers like this in the past. Alex Cobb in 2012 had this exact same problem. Pitched well with nobody on base. Guys get on base, and he did not pitch well. So I think with Johnson, uh, the, what we've seen the worst. He cannot possibly get any worse than he has been over the last nine starts. He made some progress in his, last, his most recent start against Seattle. I think there's a few more of those in him. There's going to be some lumps there, but you could get Josh Johnson for a song right now. Uh, and even in the AL only league, he's still going to be better than some of the low-end starters that you have in your roster right now. And how about a pitcher in the National League you could buy low? Uh, Ian Kennedy, that's, that's, I like the ballpark shift. That's a good guy to go with. I like the ballpark shift uh, getting out of Chase Field. That's just not a good fit for him. He needs a place where fly balls can go to die. Even with the new dimensions of Peco, it's still pretty friendly for fly ball pitchers. He's got better, you know, better overall defense behind him there. So Ian Kennedy's a guy that I like, especially for 2014. I was high on him coming into the season. Uh, it just didn't pan out for him, but I like him for 2014. How about an American League hitter you could sell high on? Colby Rasmus. I mean, since July 1st, Colby Rasmus, 44% hit rate. And we're talking about a guy with a 290 career hit rate. That can't hold up. It's been nice if you've had Kobe Rasmus because you probably got him for a song early on at drafts or later in the season. But he's had some excellent baseball. But you know, we've been waiting for this his entire career. But this kind of production of, of, of lately is ridiculous. I don't think this is sustainable. This is the guy that I'm trying to move right now. How about a National League sell-high hitter? Darren Ruff. Uh, this is a this is a quad A player in my mind. I know he's having some nice success right now, but it is all hit rate fueled. Uh, he's hitting almost almost 800 off line drives. Even as even as ground balls have been a higher batting average on balls in play. This is all hit rate fueled. There's a reason why this guy has been down in the minor leagues so long. I know his early numbers are good, but this is a guy that I do not want to keep if I have him. I am trying to move. Him. And uh, turning to the pitchers in the American League, who's a pitcher you'd like to sell high on right now? Chris Archer. Uh, the, the I know he left his last start early with some forearm tightness. The race, everything's okay. Uh, but the regression's coming with him. He had some nice, easy competition uh, in, in July that really fueled that month where he won rookie of, the, uh, rookie of the Month and Pitcher of the Month. But his hit rate's something around 18%. Uh, and, yes, the Rays do a lot of shifts, but that's not sustainable. That's going to go up. Uh, and that's the guy, when you, especially with a rookie, we've seen it uh, in, his, in his last complete start against the Giants. He lost the game 4-1, to one, uh, left a couple of pitches out over the plate that Brandon Belt just murdered. Uh, so that's one of the guys I'd be trying to move. And finally, a pitcher in the National League you could sell high. Dylan G. We've 
kind of he's kind of like the Jeff Locke of the Mets. We're talking about a guy with a uh, dom rate of four point four, a command ratio of one eight, yet his ERA is two thirty and his WHIP's one oh five. There's no way that holds up. Something has to give there with that many balls in play. You're counting on a defense that is maybe passable there with the uh, with the New York Mets. So when you've got strikeout rate that low, command ratio that low, but your ERA and your whip are like that, that's not going to hold up. All right, Jason Collette, as we wrap up the segment, please remind our listeners how they can keep up with your work everywhere that you are. Uh, best way to do it is on Twitter. I, I put everything else, uh, everything I write about out on Twitter. It's at Jason Collette. There's two L's, there's two T's, and a, a very important silent E at the end. Because if you forget the E, you're going to get the Canadian musician, uh, who is probably sick of getting baseball questions. Uh, and uh, so... Check that out, and then I got a weekly column that usually goes up on Tuesdays at Rotowire um, and at theprocessreport.net. I, I publish things as they come out. There's no set schedule there. And then a baseball prospectus. We have uh, I run the fantasy mailbag that comes out on Fridays, uh, and we do I do all the radio appearances and uh, podcast. So this Canadian musician is he any good? He's actually good. He's in, he's on the uh, independent social scene, I think they call it. But I've heard his stuff. It's good. I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't carry a tune in the bucket. I am not the person they think I am, that they think I am. That's all right. He's in 11th place in his fantasy league anyways. Uh, Jason Collette, thanks very much. We'll talk to you again, I hope, during the season, if not down the road somewhere. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on. Jason Collette writes for rotowire.com, baseballprospectus.com, and theprocessreport.com. Best place to find him is on Twitter, at Jason, J-A-S-O-N, Collette, C-O-L-L-E-T-T-E. Our regular commentaries are next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, I'm Ray Murphy. I help run things at baseballhq.com. I'm inviting you to join me at First Pitch Arizona, November 1st through 3rd in Scottsdale. It's three days, jam-packed with seminars, scouting reports, workshops, and fantasy drafts. And best of all, First Pitch Arizona is three great days just talking baseball with hundreds of serious fantasy players like you and all the top industry experts. And don't forget the ball games. First Pitch Arizona is your chance to scout 2014's impact rookies, including the annual Rising Stars All-Star Game. Visit www.firstpitchforums.com to get the skinny and to register. Sign up by August 31st to get a 40% discount on the registration fee. It's like getting Miguel Cabrera in the seventh round. First Pitch Arizona, come see for yourself why the fantasy baseball winners who attend every year call it the most fun you can have outside of draft day. We'll see you there. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Be sure to check BaseballHQ.com right now for features like Stephen Nickrand's Pitching Buyer's Guide column on starters who have changed their pitch mix. Our weekly injury roundup by Dr. HQ Rick Wilton and Ray Murphy's Speculator column looking at possible playing time losers in the stretch run. Plus, we have all the regular analysis of playing time, facts and flukes, performance validation, our buyer's guides, divisional outlooks, and much more. It's BaseballHQ.com. That's why we call it the best fantasy website in the business. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. We have BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler on deck with Master Notes and leading off the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon telling us about the Phillies' 2013 first-round draft pick shortstop J.P. Crawford. The Philadelphia Phillies have to be thrilled with the rapid development of their first-round draft pick J.P. Crawford. Crawford, who was arguably the best pure shortstop available in the draft, lasted until the 16th pick due to concerns about his swing and ability to hit for average. 
For now, those concerns look very overblown, and Crawford has been impressive at the plate so far. Crawford uses a short, compact left-handed stroke and is a nice line-drive approach. He doesn't have a ton of present power, but at 6'2", 180, he has a long, lanky frame and could add power as he fills out. Defensively, Crawford ranges well to both sides of the ball, has soft hands and a strong arm. Crawford has above-average speed and is a smart base runner. In 30 games with the Phillies' GCL squad, Crawford is hitting 375 with a very nice 466 on base percentage and a 518 slugging percentage. He has 7 doubles, 1 home run, 10 stolen bases, and 19 walks to go along with 19 strikeouts and 112 at-bats. Long-term, J.P. Crawford should be able to stick at shortstop. If his offense continues to progress, he has the potential to develop into an elite shortstop with plenty of fantasy potential. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Corden. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with our comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, Chris Maloney, and Brent Hershey have reports and updates on top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-up reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. BaseballHQ.com's call-up reports this week have looked at Arizona third-base prospect Matt Davidson, Kansas City infielder Irving Falou, and more. And we also have our minor league watch list, highlighting prospects who seem to have a clear path to the majors. And as September 1st approaches, the watch list looks at prospects like New York Mets catcher Travis Darno, Miami right-hander Sam Dyson, Minnesota Southpaw Pat Dean, and others. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler talking this week about whether one month is long enough for a league. There has been a lot of talk about the one-month leagues I ran in July. About 500 people signed up and filled 18 leagues. Dozens of different strategies were attempted. Some succeeded. Many failed. One league ended up in a tie for first and, and remained tied, even accounting for individual categories. Another league winner won by half a point, coming from behind in the final week. Four of the 18 champions ran away with winning margins over 20 points. <laughs> it was all just like regular full-season leagues. Except we could do this six times next season. Those who participated because they had a chance to play against me were duly rewarded. My average finish in these 30-team leagues was a woeful 12th place. I did finish in 6th in one league and in the top 10 in 6 leagues certainly wasn't my best performance, but it was educational. The biggest argument I've heard against the entire concept of a one-month league is that it generates sample sizes that are too small to be representative of the talent on your roster. People liken it to our regular leagues at the end of April. In fact, I caution my readers not to make moves that early because the stats haven't settled down yet. But here is a piece of long-term research that is very telling. Of the teams that will eventually go on to win their full-season leagues, 80% of them will finish the month of April in 1st, 2nd, 3rd, or 4th place. Think about that. 80% of the time, a league's eventual winner will already be sitting in a money spot after one month. So one month is enough time to provide a sense of which teams are good and which teams are not. One month can determine the early winners and losers based on their performance on draft day. And even in one month, 
Some players will outperform their baseline expectations. Some will fall short. But the overall roster will still net out at a level close to the caliber of talent you own. And that's all we ask for in a one-month league. Yes, the standings over one month can be volatile, but the standings movement is what provides the daily drama, which is my favorite part. It's the one huge thing missing in daily games. If you follow the standings in your full-season leagues right now, you typically see teams moving up or down in the categories by maybe one or two places, at most, each day. The standings are pretty well fixed over the course of each week. In a monthly league, the standings movement is more fluid, similar to what you'd experience in April. The best part is, if I watch a great performance for one or two of my players on TV one night, that could well buy me six or ten points on a given night. At this time of year, you need a bunch of those great individual performances to have any effect on the standings in full-season leagues. Yes, our industry was founded on the full-season league, and most people take great enjoyment in working a roster over six months, myself included. I'm not suggesting you give that up. But if your team is struggling, the summer can get very long. I'll be running a bunch more one-month leagues in September. This is a month that will provide a great challenge, what with the fluidity of major league rosters. I invite you to participate, again for free, before we roll this out in 2014. I'll announce the opening of signups at BaseballHQ.com, but you can get an email reminder if you join the mailing list at my site, RonChandler.com. I've personally been playing one-month contests for the past year, and actually more than a year, and can tell you they are exciting and challenging in their own right. I hope to compete against you next month. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler from BaseballHQ.com. BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler is a member of the Master Notes rotation at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. Remember, you can get Master Notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every Tuesday. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, August the 13th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 35 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank fantasy baseball researcher and writer Jason Collette. Jason's a great guy and well worth following at all his websites. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, our minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon with the Minor League Minute, and BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler, our Master Notes commentator today. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8-star rating. Also, check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. And please feel free to follow my personal Twitter account at Patrick Davitt. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our news and analysis show, League Watch Reports, Todd Zola, and weekly matchups on another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. 
Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.